Old Testament book of Malachi. It's the last book in the Old Testament. If you don't know where that is, you can find the book of Matthew and just turn to the left a few pages and you will find the book of Malachi. Um, I want to alert you to a new sermon series coming up in uh, May called How to Make Sense of Life. Um, This is uh, a series that's going to be geared specifically to just explaining how Christianity makes sense of the common questions that everybody asks. And so um, I've got these cards. We have these cards. Jamie Carter designed these for us and Rich uh, Michaels printed them for us, and they're scattered about on various seats. I would encourage you to grab one of these. There are more at the Welcome Center. There's a stack of them there, and you can get more. But I encourage you to take these and invite people to come to church uh, on the dates that you think they might be interested, given the topics that will be covered, and you'll see that on the reverse side of the card. But again, the whole idea here is to help people understand how the Bible speaks to very common questions we ask about morality and suffering and beauty and death and meaning and significance. And so that sermon series will be addressing those. Good opportunity to invite people to come to church. We're still working our way through Malachi. Uh, This is the fifth sermon in the series on Malachi, and we're going to be looking at chapter 3, verses 6 through 12 uh, today, and we've been learning a little bit about the, the danger, the problem that can occur when we allow our hearts to drift from God and become cynical and complacent and bored in our relationship with God, and that was what was going on in Israel in Malachi's day, and we've seen as Malachi has challenged the people of Israel that there were all sorts of problems in the community. You might remember the very first sermon, the problem was that the people didn't even know that God loved them. They developed this kind of hardened cynicism, how have you loved us, God? The second sermon, we saw how that lack of love led the people to um, a kind of half-hearted worship that God said revealed the fact that actually the people despised him because they were bringing injured and defiled animals to the temple. In the third sermon, we saw that this indifference and boredom with God led the men of the community to divorce their wives when they got older so that they could marry younger women from pagan nations. So Malachi had to confront that issue. And last week we saw that the people were beginning to question whether God was a God of justice. They felt like the world was getting away with everything they wanted to do, and they were wondering, was God ever going to bring justice? And so God answered that question in last week's sermon. So those are the first four, very quick review of the first four sermons here in Malachi. And now today we get to chapter 3, and God brings through Malachi this very kind of stinging charge. And what God says to the people is, you people are robbing me. You're committing robbery against me. Now, you know, robbery is a pretty significant crime. You know, in the state of Indiana, it's a level 5 felony. Robbery will get you one to six years in prison. You get convicted of robbery, you're called a criminal. And what God says here is, you've not just robbed other people, you have robbed the living God. 
That's what Malachi brings. That's the message. That's the charge. And, of course, the people want to know, how has that happened? And so their question is, okay, God, how have we robbed you? How have we robbed you? Explain that to us. And that's what God does in these passages in chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. So let me read this to you. If you'd please stand for the reading of God's Word, Malachi 3, 6 through 12. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Lord, we ask for your blessings upon your word as it goes forth. Join with your word the Holy Spirit to open eyes, soften hearts, and prepare us to receive in faith what you have to say to us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Thank you, Bruce, for your testimony. did an excellent job. And uh, we didn't talk before. Uh, we both came forward here today, but we obviously think alike because there are some things that Bruce has said that you're going to hear me say. Um, he did a good job of talking about Malachi and um, the importance of tithing. Uh, here's how this passage begins in, in verse 6. God makes this wonderful declaration in verse 6, I, the Lord, do not change. So this is what kind of sets up this discussion about tithing. He says, I, the Lord, do not change. What he means there is that I am the God who is faithful to my covenant. We've talked in past sermons about the nature of the covenant and what that means. What God is saying here in verse 6 is, I do what I say I'm going to do. And I made promises to you, and I don't change, and I'm committed to that. But the problem is that Israel has not been faithful to the covenant. And so we see that in verse 7. God says, from the days of your fathers, you've turned aside from my statutes and haven't kept them. I've upheld my end of the covenant bargain, but people, you haven't. But God offers graciously, nonetheless, this in verse 7. Return to me, he says. Return to me. Repent come back to me, and I'll return to you. I mean, you've been worshiping me so poorly. You've been questioning whether I've loved you. You've been divorcing your wives. You've been doing all this garbage, and yet if you return to me, I want to promise to you, I'll welcome you in open arms, God says. And then the people respond with this kind of curious question at the end of verse 7. How shall we return? How shall we return? And I think what the people are asking there is not... 
God, show us how we should repent. Show us how to come back. I don't think that's the nature of the question. I think the question is this. How can we return to you, God, when we've never gone astray? How can we return when we're still with you? In other words, the people are thinking there's no problem here in our relationship. The people don't know that they've strayed from God, and they've got to be waken up about this, and that's what prophets are for, and that's why God sent Malachi for this purpose. So they say, so how shall we return? I mean, what, what are you talking about, God? Coming back to you, we never left you. And that's where God then begins to point out to them, let me show you how you've strayed from me. Let me show you how you've gotten away from obedience and walking with me. Here's, here's what's happened. And, and so God, basically, he, he reminds the people of three things here in response to this question, how shall we return? And the first thing is there's a command. There's a command that the people receive that has escaped them or that they have willfully neglected. And the command is what we find here in verse 8. How shall we return, verse 7? And God answers and says this, Will man rob God, yet you are robbing me? But you say, how have we robbed you? And here's the answer, in your tithes and contributions. So the people don't see that they've, that they've got anything you know, no problems in their lives. They don't see that they've strayed from God. So they say, how do we return? And God says, you've robbed me. And they say, how have we robbed you? And God says, the problem is you're not tithing. That's your problem. That's how you've gone astray. You don't tithe. And people who don't tithe to God rob God. Now, why would he say that? Why would he use the word robbery to describe the lack of, of tithing? I mean, robbery is taking something that belongs to somebody else, right? I mean, that's a pretty basic definition of robbery. So how does that apply in this situation? Because you might say, well, I've got my money, and I made my money, and my money belongs to me, so how is it robbing God if I don't give it to him? Well, what the Bible says is the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Everything belongs to God, even the things that you have. The reason that you have money and a house and clothes and are making a living is because God gave you the ability to do it. Everything you have comes from His hand. We see this so well in 1 Chronicles 29. This is David talking. <clears throat> He's talking about the people at the time who were giving to God, and he says, but who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generous, generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. See, when we give, all we're giving is what God has already first given to us. We're giving to God what rightfully belongs to Him. And so that's why God can say, when you don't do that, you're robbing from me. You're keeping, taking what rightfully belongs to me. The illustration I always like to use for this, I think I've said it here probably a few times, but um, when I was growing up, you know, we, family would go to eat, and um, my family kind of has a sweet tooth, and so I would always order, you know, a, a piece of cake or pie or something at the end of the meal. And my dad would never order dessert, but I always did. So I'd get my little piece of pie, and I'd start eating it, and almost every single time my dad would say, can I have a bite of that? 
And I would just kind of get ready for it, you know? It's like, you can order a piece of pie. Why are you not ordering pie but wanting to eat of my pie? And I would just get angry about that. It would really irritate me. And it wasn't until <laughs> some time later, after some maturing, that I realized that my father had every right to take a bite out of my pie because it belonged to him. He bought the pie. I didn't buy it. He bought it. He had a right to take a bite out of it, and God has a right to take a bite out of your income because <laughs> it belongs to him. And when we don't give to him, we, we rob from him. We, we keep this from him. Well, what is a tithe? Uh, I think Bruce mentioned this. It's just simply 10%, 10% of a person's income. Uh, just always keep in mind, if that sounds like a high amount, the government asks for a lot more than 10%. Just keep that in mind. 10% is not that much. If you don't like 10, focus on the 90. 90 is what you get to keep. That's a lot. But a tenth is what a tithe means. And if you look at verse 10, as God continues on here, he says, bring the full tithes into the storehouse. The full tithes. That is, the full 10%. To tithe is not to give 2%. It's not to give 7.65%. It's to give 10%. And what God is commanding, this is the command that's been given in the Scriptures, the command that's been given to the people now, the full tithe. What was a tithe used for? In the Old Testament, the tithe was um, used to store up uh, uh, food, uh, so you'll see that in verse 10, bring the full tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Uh, the food was used to feed the, the Levites and those who were working in the temple, and the food was also used to feed the poor in the land. But uh, the tithes were also used to, um, to support the temple worship system, the the maintenance of the temple and the supplies in the temple. If you look in the Old Testament, you'll see that there's a pretty complex worship system described there, and that all uh, must be paid for. And so you'll see this as you look back in the Old Testament, various commands to tithe and the reason why these commands are made. Numbers 18, to the Levites I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service that they do, their service in the tent of meeting. The Levites were those who administered the sacrifices in the temple. They were the religious leaders there, and they were provided for uh, by the tithe. And we see here in Deuteronomy 26, when you have finished paying all the tithe of your produce in the third year, which is the year of tithing, give it to the Levite, but also the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, the poor, the destitute, those who would not be able to support themselves so that they may eat within your towns and be filled. So these are the various uses of the tithe, and we see another, I think, wonderful demonstration of the tithe here in 2 Chronicles 31. The people of Israel gave in abundance the first fruits of grain, that is, off the top. They took the best from the top and gave it. They didn't wait to see what they had left over at the end. It was the first fruits of grain, wine, oil, honey, and of all the produce of the field, and they brought in abundantly the tithe of everything. It's another way of saying they gave their tithe in full. 
which is what Malachi is calling on the people to do. The people did do that in the past. Second Chronicles, this is describing a situation before Malachi. So there was a time when the people were obeying the tithe, but the people have strayed. They've gone away. And that's why God is saying, you need to return to me. And the way you return, at least to start with, is by giving a tithe. Of course, there's more than just tithing, and that's what this whole book of Malachi is about. Now, I know one of the questions that runs through a lot of people's minds, and I think Bruce touched on this as well, and that is, okay, this is all Old Testament stuff. The Old Testament commands tithing, but I don't see any command in the New Testament to tithe. And, you know, that's true. There isn't an explicit command in the New Testament to tithe. The passage that that Bruce mentioned, I think, is relevant to the situation. But some say, but there's no command. There's nothing in the New Testament that tells me exactly how much I should give. And since in the New Testament we're in an age of grace and we're not under the law anymore, as the reasoning goes, well, I'm free to give whatever I want. And most often what people mean when they say that is, I'm free to give less than 10%. That's what they mean. And so I just want to examine that logic. I mean, I grant you there is no command explicitly in the New Testament to give 10%. But friends, let's just think through this, and particularly in light of the gospel. We're New Covenant Christians. We live in the time of the New Testament. We live on this side of the cross. We are recipients of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Our sins have been forgiven. We've been given the promise of eternal life. We've been justified before his law. We live in an age of grace. How much better is grace than law? Grace is a lot better than law, isn't it? So if we're in the age of grace, would you say that means that you should give less or more than 10%? How much better is grace than law? How much better is the new covenant than the old covenant? It says in uh, 2 Corinthians 3, Hebrews 8, the new covenant is better. It's a more gracious, it's a more wonderful, it's a more expansive covenant. And that's the covenant we're in now, the new covenant. So does that mean you should give less than 10% or more? What was the main redemptive event for the people of Israel in the Old Testament? As they looked back, the main redemptive event in their time was their liberation from bondage of slavery in Egypt. That ends up being kind of a type, looking forward to the gospel. But that's what the people in the Old Testament were looking back to. That's what they were responding to. Ten percent should be given in response to the people of Israel being released from Egypt. But friends, today we look back to the cross. That's the main redemptive event that we're responding to. It's a whole lot greater than being released from bondage to an oppressor as bad as that was. We've been released from bondage to the devil. We've been released from the fear of death. We've been released from the condemnation of the law. So does that suggest that you should give less than 10% or more? I mean, as an example, I mean, imagine two newlyweds. They're, they're madly in love with each other. And the husband's trying to figure out how much time he should spend with his wife. And he says, you know, I don't see anything in the Bible that commands exactly how much time I should spend with my new wife. So as a way of just showing how free I am in this relationship, I choose to spend one day out of the week with her. Not every day 
because I'm free to do what I want in this relationship. Does that make any sense? No, of course not. If you're in love with your wife, you want to spend more time with her. And if you're in love with Jesus, you want to give to him. That's the logic of the flow of redemptive history here. So it's true. Our relationship with God is a matter of the heart. That, that, that is absolutely true. And it's true that God doesn't need your money. That's true too. But if you're not giving of your money, it's very clear that God doesn't have your heart. If you want to know how much a person loves God, you can look at his or her checkbook and learn a lot. So there's a command here, a command to tithe that the people have gotten away from. But now secondly, we see there's a promise. There's a promise given in this passage, and that's in verse 10, and the promise is this. People, if you give, if you tithe, here's what I'll do, God says in verse 10. Bring the full tithes in and watch me open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. And remember, this is an agrarian society. So this is a people very dependent on the soil, on the earth, on the weather, on their crops. And so this is the way God says he's going to bless. I'm going to open the windows. That is, I'm going to make it rain. I'm going to get rid of your droughts. He says in verse 11, I'm going to rebuke the devourer. The devourer is probably just anything that would have destroyed the crops, most likely insects, but it might involve uh, drought or fire. And what God says is, I'm going to put an end to anything that would destroy your crops and put you in a place of great need. So that's the promise, that this is what I'll do for you if you tithe. But, but notice here, there's something I think very important to notice in the way this whole thing is being worded. Notice that this is not a threat. In other words, God is not saying, if you don't tithe, I'll send the devourer and I'll close up the heavens. It's not a threat. What he's saying, it's a promise. He says, if you, if you tithe, I'll open the heavens and rebuke the devourer. And the implication is that the heavens are already closed. The devourer is already at work. The implication here is that times are already hard for the Israelites. The economy's not good. They're under a curse. Do you see that in verse 9? You are cursed with a curse. This was what God had said in Deuteronomy. If you don't fulfill your end of the covenant, I'm going to send a blight upon you. And what verse, 9 is seven, what verse 9 is saying is that that curse is in place. That's present tense. These people are under the curse right now. Times are hard for Israel. They're not living in an abundance of wealth. So does God say, okay, I see that times are hard for you, and so when things get better, that's when you can start tithing. Is that what God says? No, he's acknowledging things are bad, but you got to tithe. Even when things are bad, you got to tithe. This is the common reasoning, right, that so many of us go through. We say, money's tight. I haven't had a raise in a few years. I've had a lot of unexpected expenses here lately. And we tell ourselves, 
when things get better, then I'll start tithing. I mean, how many of us are ever in a situation where we feel like, wow, I just got a whole lot of extra money over here, and I don't know what to do with it. I guess I'll start tithing. When does that ever happen? We're, we're, I think that's why God is saying to start tithing now, because if you're waiting until things are good and you're flush with money, that time never happens, and then you never tithe. Things are already tight, and so that's why God says, put me to the test. Test me on this. Why, why would he say put me to a test if there was no risk involved? If it would be just easy to tie, then it would require no sacrifice whatsoever, then what's the test? But God says, test me on this. Even when times are destitute for you, tithe, and let me show you what I can do. Watch me, God says. Watch what I'm going to do. Take a risk. Are you willing to take a risk in how you use your money? Are you willing to do that? That's a command from God. Take a risk. Step out. And give, even when it seems you don't have anything to give. Now, a, an off, a reasonable question that would come up about this is, is this. Is this teaching some kind of a prosperity gospel? It, it almost seems that way, doesn't it? I mean, the prosperity gospel is this idea that, you know, if you have enough faith and, you, and you know, if you're a good enough Christian that... God will make you rich and, and get rid of all of your illnesses and make you healthy and everything's going to go great for you all the time. Kind of a brief summary of the prosperity gospel. That's kind of what it seems like here, doesn't it? You know, look, you do this and I'm going to, you know, bless you. So is that what this is saying? And I think the answer is no. And I'm going to show you two reasons why. First is the promise here is a promise to meet basic needs. See it in verse 10? Bring the full tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. He's not saying, bring in the tithe, and I'll make sure that you have five castles and a hundred servants. Or, you know, you tithe and I'll make sure that you get a six-figure income and have three cars in your garage. That, that's not the promise. It's a promise to meet basic need. The problem with the prosperity gospel is it directs our hearts to cherish wealth. That's the problem with it. And that's exactly what the Bible prohibits. For instance, 1 Timothy chapter 6 says this, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Don't set your hope on riches. Don't become focused on riches. Don't become obsessed with it. Prosperity gospel teachers, they're always talking about money, always trying to get you to think about it. And the Bible says don't do that. All that's being promised here is that your needs will be met. Now, that doesn't mean that God won't sometimes bless people beyond their needs. Obviously, He does, but the promise here is for your needs to be met. But the other reason why this is not a prosperity gospel thing is that this is a promise to a community. It's not a promise to an individual. Prosperity gospel promises are generally to individual people. If you have enough faith, if you do this, here's how God is going to bless you, individual person. 
But the whole context of Malachi is God speaking to a community, to Israel, to the people of God. That's something we Americans have to just do everything we can to kind of push out of our mind as we read the Bible. Because we are so individualistic and we think all of these dialogues that take place between God and people are generally between God and a person when most of the time they're between God and a people. You see this uh, here in verse 9 when he talks about the curse. You are cursed with a curse for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. He's talking to the nation. He's talking to the community. You know, in English we have, when we use the pronoun you, Y-O-U, one of the ways the English language is somewhat impoverished is that we use the same you to speak to an individual as we do to speak to a group. If I say you, Kyle, I'd say you, but if I say you, new life, I say you. I, say, I use the same you. But in these ancient languages, there were different words for that. There was a singular you and a plural you. And so often throughout the Bible, the you is talking about an us. The Bible doesn't speak so much to me as it speaks to we. That, that's the constant thrust, and that's what's going on here. It's a promise to the people of God. It's a promise to the covenant community. But the overall kind of thrust here that I want you to take away from this promise is that, that this promise is that the purpose of the tithe is, is not to impoverish you. It's to bless you. I think that's why so many of us, we don't want to tithe. We think, we're going to, I'm going to be living in a trailer park someday if I tithe. I'm going to be poor. I'm going to be destitute. God says, no, that's not the purpose of the tithe, to hold you down and take your things from you. The purpose of the tithe is to bless. So test him on that. But the last thing that we see is a certain result that comes. There's a command, there's a promise, and there's a result. So just as a review, here's what Malachi is saying to the people, what God is saying through Malachi. People, you're not tithing. And by not tithing, you're robbing God. But if you return to God, if you repent and you start tithing, I will bless you and I will meet all your needs. And the result of that, here's what's going to happen when the people of God begin tithing. Look at verse 12. Here's what will happen. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. It's like God is saying, you tithe, and you are going to be the envy of the world, Israel. People are going to look at you, and they're going to say, wow, what a, what a tremendous people that is. What an amazing community. I want that. I want in on that. I want to be with those people. So God is saying is going to happen. The world is going to look, and they're going to say, there's something really good going on there. And that has always been the purpose of God in calling Israel out of, uh, through Abraham. Remember, he, the promise to Abraham was, Abraham, through you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Israel has always been called to not just focus on themselves, but to live in a way that calls attention to the world. Here's what uh, Michael Williams says. God means Israel to be distinct, distinguishable, different. 
but distinct in the midst of the nations. In short, what God is should be seen in how Israel lives. And we can say the same thing about the church today. What God is should be seen in how the church lives. We're to be distinct, distinguishable, different. You know one of the best ways that you can be distinct from the world? Give away your money. That's something that the world just doesn't understand, but there's just something strangely alluring about it. What is it that would make you want to give away what you've earned? That's how people start asking questions. What makes you tick? Why would you do this? And that's what Malachi is saying. The nations are going to start paying attention. And never until I read this passage or studied it in some detail did I realize that there is a connection between tithing and our witness to the world. There's some connection between the way a congregation of people tithes and the impression that it makes on the community that's observing it. So apparently it's not just so much, this is just something between me and God, this individualistic thing, and I just make my own decision based on what I think God is calling me to do. Now, you've got to think about this in terms of the community. I mean, do you ever ask yourself that question when you talk about tithing? If you're not tithing, do you ever ask, how is this affecting my brothers and sisters in new life? Rather than how is this affecting my pocketbook and my financial goals? You're part of a community. And this community aspect is what Malachi is bringing to their attention. The nations are going to look, and they're going to be impressed. I remember when Mary and I lived in St. Louis, and we were attending, um, well, I was working at a church that was up north in Alton, which is north of St. Louis, and so we'd have to make this drive up to Alton regularly. <clears throat> and I remember <clears throat> that we always passed this building, and it was, it was a church building, and it was half done. And there was never anybody out there working on it. And we drove by that thing for years. And I never saw any activity out there. A half-done church just sitting there, neglected. And you know, I never got the story about what actually was going on there. So, you know, I, I can't say for sure, but you, know, you just have to wonder, is it because they just couldn't pay for that? I mean, maybe they were too ambitious, maybe they were irresponsible, and you know, I, I don't know, but all I know is that there were cars driving by that building on a highway every single day looking over, oh yeah, those are the people who can't finish what they start. And I think we've got to ask that question, what, what do people, what conclusions do they draw about the church based on what they observe about how communities act? What, what do people in New Yorktown, what conclusions do they draw as they drive by River Road and 500 West? I mean, it sounds kind of vain. I mean, we don't want to live always worried about what other people are thinking. I'm not saying that. I'm just trying to say what verse 12 here says. All the nations are going to call Israel blessed if they see him giving, and the world is watching us as well, and the way we give will have an impact on that. So, friends, my challenge to you as we close here is just this. If you're, if you're giving 10%, then that's good. But maybe God's calling you to give more. Have you thought about that? If you're not giving 10% to your church, 
And that means if this is your church, it ought to be to this church. If you're not from this church, it ought to go to whatever church you're going to. But if you're not giving 10%, you need to start making plans to do that. You need to do that. Because if you don't, you're robbing God. That's what the Scriptures say. So what do you do? How, how do you do that? You know, the first few months here at New Life have been really good, actually. Giving has been really good. And we typically have a little insert in our order of worship where you can see how we're doing. I'm not sure if that's in today's insert or not, but, you know, keep an eye on that. And you'll see things have been going well. And so thank God for that. And, you know, thank you for your generosity and your giving. But friends, please don't look at that and say, oh, well, things are going pretty well now, so I guess I don't really have to be too concerned about giving. Please don't draw that conclusion. <laughs> we still have a mortgage to pay here. We just hired a youth director and a family. We got a church plant happening here in this summer. We're going to see a lot of people leave with that church plant. Um, we need you to keep giving and to give even more. So what, what do you do? What are some ideas? I mean, if you're thinking, this is overwhelming to me. I'm not giving, and I guess I probably should, but where do I start? Well, do you have a budget? Do you even know where your money's going? Do you know how much is coming in and how much is going out? I mean, maybe you can afford more than you think if you would get a handle on your finances. Get a budget together. Um, how much are you eating out? I mean, you know, going to restaurants just will suck you dry, particularly after you lay down that tip. It's unbelievable how much it costs to go out. I'm not saying you can't go out to eat, but can you pull back on that a little bit? Do you really need 110 channels with your cable package? Do you need that many TV channels? Do you need cable TV at all? Really? I mean, can, can you think, can I challenge you to think about some things? How can I cut back a little bit so I can give more? If you have a lot of debt, you know, you can negotiate the interest rates on your debt. You can talk to your lenders and figure out how to do that. You can transfer debt from one credit card to another, maybe get a lower rate, save a lot of money. Parents, you can start teaching your kids right now to tithe. Right now when they're small children, and I don't know if you give allowances, but let's say you do and they get $10 a week, well, $1 goes into the plate. Get them started on that now, and then it isn't such a shock when some preacher gets up and preaches on tithing one day, like I'm doing right now. I think I never knew this was part of being a Christian. Parents, you can get them ready for that habit even now. <clears throat> so, if you work through some of the questions you're probably having. Um, but friends, just remember what is said at the very start of this passage. God, God doesn't change. God is faithful. God, is, God always does what He says He's going to do. He doesn't change. He doesn't waver. And he, he has been so faithful, He sent a Messiah just like He said He was. And that Messiah did a, Messiah did a whole lot more than anybody ever expected Him to do. He said, I'll be faithful to forgive you of your sins, even the sins of robbing God. You take those to God and he'll wipe them away and he'll forgive them. But he's also said that he'll be faithful to open up the doors of heaven for you if you tithe. So put him to the test and let's see what God does. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way you challenge us. We thank you, Father, for...